Oh, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. I love that song and see it as a prayer. Let me sow hope. Let me bring love. Let me bring peace. Let me be those things in the world, hope, love, and peace. And I see it as a prayer because I know I need it as a prayer because there's times when I don't feel all that loving or all that hopeful or necessarily all that peaceful. There are times when I just kind of miss the mark. So I appreciate this prayer this morning from the choir. Uh, Help me be. Help us be. Oh, God, help us be those people of peace and of hope and of love. And when we're not, oh, God, let us know that we are human. Let us know that we might miss the mark and that you still love us. So we have this wonderful target up here. The, the person's having a hard time hitting the bullseye, right? You know, but it doesn't mean they weren't trying. You know, they got a lot of arrows up there. I don't know if the ones in the center came first and they got worse or if the ones at the outside came first and they were getting better along the way. But it's up here because there's a term in Greek. It's called hamartiology. Uh, and that is the word in the scripture for sin. And it means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word sin, it sounds like this huge, overpowering, encompassing thing, you know, and and really it means that you tried, but you just didn't get it quite right. Sometimes you may have missed by a bigger margin, or you may have missed by a smaller margin, but what it means is that you didn't quite hit the whole mark. So when they say sin, at least when Paul's using the word, he's using the Greek word, which is an archery term, which means to miss the mark. And so I know that there are times when I have missed the mark. Maybe you know times we have too. Maybe the driver reminds you by honking the horn. Maybe your loved one reminds you by gently correcting you or ungently correcting you. But there are times when we have missed the mark. But we're a combination of things. Uh, Mary Seabrin at St. James Church in Freedmanstown here had a traditional greeting she would open the service with. And, she would, and you, your reply is good morning so you can participate. She would say, good morning, saints. Good morning. And then she would say, good morning, sinners. Good Not quite as loud. <laughs> and so, so Mary, if that happened in Mary's church, Mary would say, uh, now I saw some of you Saturday night. And so you better speak up because she is likely to call on you out. But, you know, it was in family spirit that Mary did that. It was in recognition that we all missed the mark, that we are all very human, and that we are all saints. Sometimes that's hard for us to say, too. And we all missed the mark as well. We're all sinners. One of my first sermons I ever gave, I was about 13 years old. I was at camp alongside a lake, and I went up to a wooden pulpit out in the uh, unsheltered space, and, but it was gorgeous, pews were in the ground, and I went up to that pulpit, and I went, repent, repent, repent. <laughs> that was the whole sermon, three words. <laughs> and my other 13-year-old teenagers all started giggling, and then we went and jumped in the lake. But something in my life told me that's what a preacher did. You know, that it pointed out the sin and said, repent, repent, repent. And, and it was not a really fun thing to do, but you could be really loud when you did it. And you could really beat the pulpit hard when you did it too. So, so I was pretty dramatic about that. 
And, and, and what's fascinating to me is that in the Methodist church I grew up in, we didn't hear those sermons. That's not what our preachers did in church. But my little 13-year-old self knew that's what a preacher was supposed to do. You know, I got up there and I did that. It was much more fun to jump into the lake than to beat, on, to beat on the pulpit. But so for some of us, we have that within us, whether we were preached it or not. Some of us, unfortunately, heard it every Sunday, you know, but without the loving part of it, the loving part that says, you, you tried hard, you may have missed the mark. And you may want to turn a bit, know that God's with you right wherever you are, and God's with you along the way, of repentance, which really just means turning towards God, Turning towards God. So these words, here am I by radio preachers and TV preachers, and they just, you know, repent can take five minutes to say it just one time. Talk about Texanese. They do a good job. They do a good job with it. But what we're, when we say love the sinner, hate the sin, we need to know exactly in Scripture what sin was because this is saying something different than what was in Scripture. They did a study a few years back called the Barna study, and it was of young people, young people, teenagers up to close to age 25. And in that study, they got some results. They asked them about church, what they felt about church, what was going on in their lives. And uh, one of the top things, they ranked the most common responses. And so almost 100%, it was 98%. What's wrong with church? 98% of those young people said it's too hypocritical and judgmental. 98%. It's too hypocritical and judgmental. The next highest agreement on the study was they hate gay people. Young people, teenagers to age 25. Too hypocritical and judgmental, and they hate gay people. I can't bring my friend to worship because they're so mean. This posed a dilemma to some of our evangelical friends and some of our conservative Christians. Because their bread and butter was being mean to LGBTQ people. It got people in the pews, got people angry, got someone marginalized you could point at and say that was the blame. This was bread and butter for a lot of the tradition of the Christian church. But what do they do? They're about to lose a generation. Because they said you're too judgmental, you're too hypocritical, and you're too mean to gay people. So you might think they'd want to rethink what the Holy Spirit was telling them in that study. But what they decided to do instead was figure out a way to continue to hate gay people but be nicer about it. <laughs> I'm serious. We want to continue to judge. We want to continue to blame. We want to continue to do all these things uh, because that's what we believe we're called to do. But how can we be nicer about it so it doesn't look judgmental and doesn't look hypocritical? They made really good use of love the sinner, hate the sin. Some people actually think that sounds like a positive thing, right? Love the sinner. You know, there's some challenges with it, but love the sinner, hate the sin has been put to very, very good use. I don't know how you've heard it in your life, but I usually feel judged whenever I hear it. And sometimes it even came along with some extra words. Well, you know, we forgive murderers and rapists, so we might as well forgive you too. <laughs> Did you hear that? We allow addicts and prostitutes in church. We might as well allow you too. We allow 
all of these things. So, you know, Paul actually incited a crowd to kill people, and Moses actually did murder himself. So, so you queer people, well, we ought to welcome you too. Love the sinner, hate the sin. It didn't feel real welcoming when they did it that way. And what was interesting about it is that all sins were never thought to be the same in Scripture. But when they say it like that, it sort of sounds like they feel like they're being gracious. I'm gracious enough to love you this much, even though you're a prisoner. You've been in prison before. I'm gracious enough to love you this much because you used to use or are still having a hard time getting sober. I'm gracious enough. I feel good about myself enough to love you from that position. But the scripture in uh, 1 John 5 said there's those kind of sins that kill people. And then there's other sins that just aren't really great, but yeah. So they divide it up between sins. Some sins are worse than other sins. All sins are not the same. Some cause death. Now the Catholic Church took that a step further, and they ranked sins. You all remember some of that? The Old Testament does too if you really want to look at it. Which sin is the worst, the best? You just look at what the punishments are. For, for them, and you'll find out which ones they thought were worse than others. But the Catholic Church decided that they would rank these sins, and you've heard of the seven deadly sins? It's a real thing. It's not just a Brad Pitt movie. <laughs> seven, seven, seven deadly sins. And so if you grew up Catholic, you were familiar with these. And what, what many people don't understand when they think of the seven deadly sins or they look at this, one through seven, and this is an order of how they're taught, is that number seven is the worst, and number one is the least. So they're ranked according to increasing badness perspective from the Catholic Church as they, as they ranked these sins for people. Where do we spend all our time pointing fingers? We didn't even choose to go up the ladder at all. We used to choose to point at the one that's about people's bodies or something usually and what they're doing with their parts. You know, we never get to greed or envy or pride. You know, but even within their system, they've ranked these in ways. So, so when anyone comes up to you and says, oh, well, you know, um, all sins are the same. So since we allow uh, mass murderers to have forgiveness, we should allow you, with whatever horrible thing you've done, into the church as well. They're not talking about what's in the scripture. And they're not talking about what Jesus talked about at all. So I want you to keep that in mind. We have one of, our, one of our members who has three degrees and is working on his fourth. Three degrees, working on his fourth. And, and he said to me one time, he said, you know, Troy, I have such a hard time not coming to church. And I said, well, that's okay with me. Come on to church. And he said, oh, no, you don't understand. I grew up in the Catholic church. And it was a mortal sin not to come to church. And so I said to him, I said, well... I want you to come to church because I think it's good for you and it's good for all of us when you're here. But I don't want you to come because you think you're sinning if you don't come. I want you to come because you know you can find God's love there. And I want you to come because you know you can share God's love with another person. So let's let go of those mortal sins. Let's let go of those venial sins. Some of that old teaching just doesn't work work for us too well anymore. You know, when we say that, love the sin or hate the sin, it means that somehow we're in some sort of position to know what your sin is. 
without knowing the experience of your life as to why maybe that behavior is there, without knowing whatever's happened to you that day as to why you are that way, or the choices you're making might make sense to you, but don't make sense to anyone else who's looking on. It assumes that we know more about you than you know about yourself. And it assumes that we have taken that log out of our eye that Jesus talked about, that we can see clearly to be able to see what your sin is. And it does put the focus on the person's wrongdoings, on the person's sin, instead of their belovedness, instead of how they're made in God's image. And it takes it wrongly off where it should be, our own work to not miss the mark, our own work to try again to get as close as we can to God's love in our lives, how we try that and how we do that. Can we take the log out of our own eyes and not look so much at others to be able to point those fingers? You know, Jesus talked about prayer, and he talked about the temple, and he saw a Pharisee and a tax collector praying. The Pharisee went up and put their money in the box and then prayed about how wonderful they were, how much they did for God and the place of worship and all those things happening, and, and just was just really celebrative and thankful for how good they were. The tax collector went up there and put what they could in the box and said, Oh, forgive me. Forgive me for I've not made the mark. Forgive me for the things I've done in my life. You know, love me, even though I missed the mark. Jesus' response was, Who do you think was reconciled? This question. And they replied, The tax collector. So what does it mean that even Jesus says, You know, It's more about, can you be humble? Can you let go of some of that pride and be reconciled with God? Another verse in scriptures is from the book of Romans chapter 12. And this is where this comes from a lot. And book of Romans chapter 12 is talking to a community that's kind of one-up each other. They're in competition with each other uh, for who can be the best in the community. And so in this Part of chapter 12, it says, We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We have prophecy. We have ministry. We have teaching. We have exhortation. And we have generosity. And we have leaders. You know, and it says, All of this in cheerfulness. Do all your gifts in cheerfulness. Stop competing, Paul is saying, with one another. Accept the gift you've got. Share the gift you've got. Don't be envious of anyone else and the gifts they have. But bring what you have to the table. And then the next verse is where the problem is. It says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So this has been actually perverted to say, love the sinner, hate the sin. When actually what it's talking about is let love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. You. I'm not talking about you loving other sinners. Let your love be genuine, yours. Hate what misses the mark in your own life. Work on whatever temptation or every failing it is that you battle with, and we all have some. And it says also, hold on to what is good in you. As God sees you as God's beloved, hold on to what is good in you. Paul is trying to take a community that's bickering and competing with one another and trying to be on top of one another to say, look, take the log out of your eye. You're just judging incorrectly. 
And then we go back to the Matthew reading. Remember what Jesus cautions, you know, how you judge is how you'll be judged. Because often you're as hard on yourself sometimes as you are on those that you're judging. Well, I don't know about you, but when Thomas Turbatas got up here and shared his story a few months ago, he was talking about getting married and how his family had supported him all the time, and he was just so thankful for that, and he sent out this joyous announcement they were getting married, and the family turned back to Thomas and a couple of them and said, we can't support you in this. We can't support you in this. And he lost a brother who wouldn't come to the wedding. It may be healed. There may be some reconciliation on the way. But there was something about loving the sinner and hating the sin that was at play here. They felt like they could love one way, but that this marriage word was just too much. And they couldn't support Tomas that far. And then Walter and I got to have the same thing happen in our own lives. Our families have been supportive. We got married in Iowa, of all places, along the Mississippi River. And our dads were our best men. And Walter's mom came up to be there as well and participate in the service with us. And it was a surprising and joyful event, you know. And we know that in our family we've had some ups and downs, and particularly between Walter and his mom, there's been some challenges You know, uh, we we try to explain to her how things can be hurtful sometimes, and she doesn't necessarily get it. Uh, How she told us so many times she couldn't visit us in Houston. She lives near McAllen. And then when his brother is at Disney World in Florida, she manages to drive from McAllen all the way to Disney World. Actually drives through Houston (laughs) to Disney World, but doesn't have the time to stop for breakfast or lunch or anything, even if we come to I-10 to meet her there. So we know that there's been challenges with her over the years, but once we decided that we would be adopting, it got worse, and we didn't expect it could, but I want to share with you what she sent to us when she knew that we were in the process of adoption, and this is half of what she said, not all of it. I just need you to know that as much as I love you, I can't accept your way of life. God says a marriage is between one man and one woman and that they bring, ch- and that they bring children into the world. I have to choose God's way. I want to live for him and find my eternal home in heaven. I want to live for God and walk the streets of gold in heaven. I am not against you adopting a child, but feel... It is not right for any person with your lifestyle. I can't get involved in this process. I feel this isn't a good decision. I do love you today and always. I can judge no one. Only God does the judging. I am just letting you know how I feel. And I hope that one day I will see you in heaven also. Love always, Mom. I kind of felt judged. Isn't that interesting? No one can judge but God, but this is just how I feel. Maybe I'll see you in heaven, but it doesn't look likely right now. You know, this is just how I feel. You know, this is your lifestyle, and lifestyle's in a letter about five other times uh, that I didn't share with you. And so... What happened after that, a few months later, was my birthday. And her habit had been to send us cards with a little bit of check in them as a birthday gift for her 
adult children. And she put a, that card in it and put that check in it. And I said, okay, Walter, what, what do we do with this? What do we It's the first communication several months later. And um, I didn't want to receive the gift because it didn't feel like genuine love. I felt more like we were still in the hate the sinner, love the sin mode. And so we thought about it and talked about it, and eventually we decided I would send it back to her. And as I sent it back to her, I did something maybe a little sneaky, but I just had to. I made a collage of pictures of Walter and I and Michael. And his first plane ride at home watching TV, him being cool, uh, the shower that the church gave us for being a new family, some of those things. Um, and it had meet Michael Tresh at the top. And then at the bottom, what I wrote, and as I included this with the returned card and check, I said, Mary, your last note indicated no support of our family, claiming it was God's will for you to judge us. If you change your mind, we are here. If not, we hope the best for you far away from us. Troy. I don't know how close I got to the mark. But what I do know in my humanness, I knew I had to protect my husband and my son and myself. And I knew that I needed to let her know that it was not okay. So if you find yourself getting a love the sinner, hate the sin letter, know that that is not part of scripture. Know that it's said in a way that judges, and you do not have to receive that judgment. You can release it. It's sort of, you're a sinner, but graciously, I choose to love you anyway, and that's not what Jesus did. Jesus never said, love the sinner. Jesus said, love the neighbor. Not love the sinner, love the neighbor. And more importantly, there is a truth in love the sinner, hate the sin. So we're talking about half-truth, right? There is a truth in love, the sinner, hate, the sin. It stops with the first word, love. The truth of love, the sinner, hate, the sin stops with the first word, love. People of resurrection, release the half-truth. I have a picture of a T-shirt up here you can probably order and buy with this. Love, the sinner, hate, the sin, and have the rest of it marked out. Because the only truth in that word is love. Amen.
Good morning. I love this part of the service because it allows me to give back of what God has given me.